Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. It's really a great pleasure to me, for me to be here this evening. Um, I've got quite a lot of time to talk to you, so I'm probably going to talk for about, about 40 minutes. The last talk I gave was to the President of Singapore, and I was told I had precisely three minutes, and there was someone with a stop stopwatch at the back of the hall uh, in a military uniform, and I think he was armed as well, so it kind of felt, like, it felt relatively high pressure. I, I'm tr- I hope that none of you are wearing uniform, and none of you appear to be armed as far as I can see, so I'm, I'm really relaxed and happy to be spending my Friday evening doing this. So uh, uh, the good news is, uh, um, is that uh, we're all living longer, at least collectively we're all, all li- living longer. So uh, this will be well known, of course, to, to many of you, probably perhaps better known to you um, than, uh, than to myself, depending on your, on your field. This is a population pyramid. This is the world population in 1950. Uh, very, very uh, young babies down here and not many people up here um, above 75 years, uh, years old. And it's the world population that's 1950. And it's a very uh, nice illustration if, you, if I just skip forward now and just let the animation run through the 1980s and the 1990s and the year 2000 and 2010. Um, and so that's the world's projected sort of population balance in, in 2030. And it's a, it's a very, very simple illustration. You'll all be familiar with this and hardly pick up a paper nowadays without reading about ageing populations. But you can see a very, you know, there's a very dramatic shift as the bottom of the pyramid narrows compared to the top. And of course, at one level, this is fantastic, especially if you're at the top of the pyramid. So, um, so we can, you know, re, you know uh, uh, babies born in, uh, you know, fortunate enough to be born in developed countries uh, like the UK, uh, today, uh, most of them will live to be 100 years old. That's, that, that, that's, that will be the normal population, uh, sort of a lifetime uh, uh, ex- expectancy, which is fantastic. But there's a little bit of a problem there, which I'm sure everyone is, is well aware of, which is, is, is that there's a, a, an awful lot of healthcare cost in this half of the, of the pyramid as people get older, they develop uh, long term uh, diseases. So this part of the pyramid tends to be sort of uh, tends to uh, require some investment, and most of the investment comes from the taxes paid by the people in the working part of the pyramid. So obviously, if the if the top uh, gets big compared to the bottom, it starts to create a bit of an issue just in terms of just basic healthcare economics. It's very it's very simple and, and, and well known. And this is a problem for the world. Um, obviously, the world includes developed countries and not and non-developed countries, and different countries, different things happening. This is more or less correct for Europe and the UK as well. UK picture is about the same. Some countries are, are, have a particular issue, though. This is population pyramid for China in 2040. So China has successfully pursued a policy of one child per family for however many years they've been doing that for. And that this, will, this will be the result, which is that the top half of the pyramid is going to be substantially bigger than the bottom half of the pyramid, and it's actually been inverted. So somehow or another, the people down here who will be working and will have families to support and will have elderly relatives to support... Uh, there's actually not as many of those as there are of, of those. So there's an awful lot of pe- people in this part of the population in China who are not going to have anyone to care for them. There won't be a family member. And uh, that's going to be really very, very difficult for countries like China uh, to cope with. China's quite an extreme example, but other countries with major issues include Japan and Singapore, for example. So, so Singapore will shortly, I think, become the oldest, the oldest society in human history in terms of average age. So these are these are... Uh, profound things. Um, so uh, we can say that healthcare is under pressure. That seems reasonable. Um, changing demographics. So the uh, st- uh, statistic for the UK is um, the number of people o- aged over 85 will uh, roughly double over the next 20 years. A big rise in long-term health conditions. It's important to realise that a big rise in long-term health conditions is not actually just associated um, with uh, older adults at all. And so 
one long-term health condition that's sadly very common is, is various forms of depression, and prescriptions for antidepressants in the UK rose by about 30% over a period of three years, um, over I think about a couple, couple of years ago, this statistic is from. Um, in uh, England, a quarter of the adults are obese, um, and obviously a, a large number of others are overweight, and um, partly as a consequence of that, uh, the number of people diagnosed with diabetes increased by 25% over a five-year period. And as I said, you scarcely have to op- do anything more than open a newspaper to see, to see the headlines about the, the stress that the NHS is under, uh, the changes to the way people are thinking about pensions and providing for health care costs. And people who know much more about this uh, than I do, when I speak to them, people who are experts in health economics and experts in the way the NHS uh, is, is working, will just they tell me very, very simply that this model is not going to continue. The things that we take for granted about the NHS now or took for granted 10 or 20 years ago are, are not sustainable. It's, it, it, won't, it won't cope with uh, these changes. And so we need to do something, something creative. Um, just trying to train more doctors and nurses, although that's part of the solution, that's not, going, that's not going to be enough because there just won't be enough doctors and nurses. We can't have everyone in the entire working population being trained as a doctor and nurse to, um, to care for everyone else. So there's a limit to the number of people that we can train, and certainly we are approaching those limits. So uh, um, a significant solution is uh, around personalised uh, healthcare, and I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Um, so part of that is keeping people out of hospitals and clinics, and this is just plain common sense. This is what clinicians have been, have, have been saying um, forever, as far as I'm aware, which is, which is that we should do prevention rather than treatment. It's cheaper, obviously, to treat people, to prevent diseases and these long-term health conditions. It's better to stop people getting diabetes than waiting for them to get diabetes and then treating the diabetes. This is obvious, and clinicians have always said this. Um, uh, another part of the picture is, is helping clinicians to understand uh, the whole, whole patient. Clinicians want to treat the whole patient rather than just a particular symptom or, or a disease. But what does that actually mean? So what it, what it actually means nowadays for, for a clinician is that we need to help clinicians uh, deal with genetic data on their, on their patients to integrate that as one source of information, the things that people, uh, their genes tell us that they are susceptible to particular health problems. Uh, metabolic data uh, about me currently medical imaging data, all the ultrasounds and x-rays and MRIs that, that, that we get that form part of a picture about us. And we've all had doctor's appointments where they, where they may deal with one of these. They may look at an x-ray or something. But dealing with the, uh, um, a huge volume of these over the entire lifetime of, 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 a, of a patient is not something that clinicians will routinely do uh, at the moment. And actually, the, the most difficult but perhaps the most important part of, um, part of that data picture picture is lifestyle data. It's about the things that I eat and drink, about the environmental pollutants that I might be exposed to, it's about my sleep patterns, my activity patterns. And that actually is data that clinicians don't normally get to deal with at all. Clinicians are beginning to see people come into their, doc- to their surgeries with wearable devices saying that my, my uh, smart band is telling, my smartwatch is telling me that I'm not, I'm not sleeping enough or I'm not exercising enough. Clinicians are beginning to see this, but it's scarcely um, part of um, their uh, normal, uh, normal procedures. So gathering this sort of data is increasingly becoming uh, possible. Genetic data are actually relatively easy to acquire that, but lifestyle data, how doctors know what we're doing when we're not in the doctor's surgery, uh, is a different matter. 
And we can take this whole picture and the vision of personalized uh, healthcare to take all these sources of data and to do things with them. So determining the right medication, the right advice, the right lifestyle advice for me, what is the right diagnostic test for me, and then ultimately what is the right surgical procedure for me, or in fact is surgery not the right option for me. And so that's kind of what we mean by personalized healthcare. So it's a lot to do with data driving the, all the decisions made about treating people and indeed keeping them out of hospital. So uh, I'm an engineer, so I thought you would find it reassuring if I uh, gave you an engineering-like diagram. Um, So this is what I remember from my undergraduate days as to uh, what engineers talk about. So this is is a system. And it's kind of a deliberately crude picture, okay? But I'm just going to kind of use it. So this is the normal engineering view of a system. So the system sits here, whatever the system is. I'll come on to this in a minute. And it has some inputs, so stuff comes into it. It does something, and those things are observed in the form of outputs. And then some down here, down you have some sort of other system that tries to keep that system in check and working properly. So the, this, this, this thing down here looks at what's coming out of the system, and it observes it, and it tries to keep this system optimised and working nicely. And ooh, a good example of that, simple example of that, is, is an aircraft, for example. So you might have the system, which is the aircraft, and the dynamics of the aircraft... And there's an autopilot that observes what the aircraft is doing and, and applies con- some control inputs to keep the aircraft flying steadily at a, at a steady speed. So this is a very common uh, problem engineering, the, the control problem. So why am I mentioning this? Well, um, because I can think of myself as a system, or I can think of, of yourself as a system as well, and I can translate that onto, onto my diagram like this. This is me here because you don't recognize me. And so these are, this is my properties, this is my system, this is my body and my mind, and it's determined and more or less fixed by, 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 gen, by genetics, my physiology and my anatomy. And so I might be able to find out about it by doing some test on me or doing some medical image, taking some medical image of, on me. And I might be able to find out about my genetics by having a genetic, genetic test. And that's kind of me, and I'm kind of fixed. And I have some outputs that I wish to achieve. I wish to have health. I wish to live forever, if at all possible. I would like to be productive, I'd like to be happy, and I don't want to incur too much cost. So if I have to pay for my health care, then I don't want it to cost too much. And if someone else has to pay for my health care, like the NHS, they probably also don't want it to cost too much. So these are some desirable outputs. And on the input, the things that affect this are things like um, exercise, diet, sleep, environment, the infections that I pick up, the medication um, that I take, and any therapy or surgery that I might need to keep my whole system ticking over nicely. So these are kind of my inputs, and these are my outputs. And really what I would like is some sort of system, and the system might include a doctor or it might not, which, um, which regulates these things or tweaks these things or adds a little bit to these things to keep these outputs at their most optimum level. And so this is kind of an engineering view of kind of basically what healthcare is trying to achieve. It's trying to achieve a good outcome over here, and there are some things that it control. It can control over here. Can't really control my genes, but it can control these inputs. And like I said, I'm kind of being deliberately crude uh, about this. Um, so uh, we could let's so let's take some examples of, of actually kind of trying to trying to do this. And so I'm going to read you some made up stories that I've actually got on the laptop. So this is Gerhard. This is not Gerhard. This is just a picture I found on the internet that I've pixelated, just in case it really is somebody who, who might see this see this presentation. His, his name is definitely not Gerhard, and he is not 55, and he doesn't work in publishing. But let's pretend that he is all those things. Um, so he has a family history of cardiovascular disease, 
Uh, he had an MRI of his heart a few years ago, so this is a medical image coming into his data, data picture. Uh, and because of the family history, he now has regular blood tests for biochemical markers for various cardiovascular diseases, including blood lipids and proteins. Uh, waking up this morning, his wearable, his wristband, computes that because of the air quality today, which has come from an air quality sensor in his local neighbourhood, so the quality is perhaps bad because of some weather condition and which is trapping pollution over the city, this local pollution creates a particular risk for him, not for everybody in general, but because of him, because of his um, predisposition uh, to heart problems. And um, so for him that day, it's not a very good idea to, to go out. And it's actually also looked at his diary, which it links with as well. And it sees he doesn't have, have any appointments uh, uh, this morning. So it says that today, actually, for him, might be, it might be a good day to stay at home. So it's taken some environmental information, some medical history, some family history, perhaps some genetic information about his, from, about his, uh, his particular risk, uh, and some medical imaging data, and it has made, without having to talk to a doctor, Gerhard hasn't had to ring up, ring up anyone to find this out, it said that, you know, the best thing for you today is probably not actually to go to work. Uh, here's another fictitious person. This is John, who isn't a 65-year-old, 63-year-old executive. Um, so, uh, uh, so he works in finance or something or other. It's uh, quite, quite, uh, quite stressful. Um, he's quite a wealthy individual. He actually he's just paid £2,000 to have his uh, genes sequenced, um, which is kind of of the order of how much it costs to have these things done nowadays. And that's revealed to him a genetic predisposition to cardiovascular disease. So he's found out about something that he didn't, that he didn't know. So he's now having extra cholesterol checks he wears a smartwatch, which takes his uh, ECG and sets him an, a, a personalised activity target each day. But of course, like the rest of us, if he gets set a target, he might or might not comply with that. But the other thing that his watch is, it's linked into his, uh, his social media and his calendar and the calendar for his work colleagues. And uh, it noted that uh, actually that day, all his friends were playing squash at lunchtime. Okay, and that's just enough to get John to go to the gym uh, in the evening. So a little bit of, uh, again, it's taken some information about his genetics, um, some ECG data, and some information sort of socially to give him a little behavioral prompt just to encourage him to go that time, extra time to the gym that might make the difference for him. Um, uh, so another case is someone working uh, in a hospital, a nurse, for example. Um, so she works shifts, and the shifts um, disturb her sleep. And in fact, she has a genetic condition, um, which uh, means that she's more likely to, to develop depression uh, if her sleep pattern is, is disruptive, disrupted. So for her, rather than for like an average member of the population, but for her in particular, um, there's, there's a risk that the, her shift work may affect her health and leave her at risk of, of depression. And she has been feeling very tired uh, recently, and she's had a checkup. Uh, paid for by her employer, who uh, is, is obviously concerned about the effect of irregular working hours on her. And uh, her, her wearable device has been monitoring her sleep pattern, and it's, it's seen that the, dis- the amount of disruption that, that there, is, there is to that. Uh, uh, the doctor sees that sleep information from, from her wearable uh, in some easy-to-read form, but actually looks at it and says, you know, there's a bit of variation here, but actually it's fine. There's, there is nothing wrong with you. You don't need to worry that you're at risk of depression. Um, you know, your sleep pattern is a little bit disrupted, but basically it's fine. And although you're feeling tired, it's more likely that you need a blood test to te- check for anemia rather than that you're at risk of, risk of depression because of disrupted sleep. So again, fusing lots of different pieces of, of information that to optimise the outcome for her 
and actually to reassure her that she's not particularly at risk of depression from what's happening to her and she's actually fine, but she might need a test for something else. So these are all relatively simple and not, not particularly uh, complicated or unfeasible examples. I've slightly made them up, so if you're a specialist in these things, then, then please correct me after, after the, the lecture, but broadly speaking, they seem more or less plausible. Uh, so that world of personalised healthcare, dragging in lots of data, that were medical images from my past, genetic information, blood tests recently, sleep patterns, diet data, ECG data, environmental pollution data, um, that sounds a little bit science fiction. Um, and I was on the, on the train the other day and uh, I had a copy of the Times, it's probably about two, three weeks ago, and I opened the Times and in the middle was a section on uh, the age of personalisation. And I, I opened it I thought, this is interesting, this is probably something to do with health then, personalised health. But no, it's not. It's to do with uh, the way search engines and Amazon mine your data to sell you stuff. Okay, so they, the way they analyse your social media, the things you search for online, the things you've previously bought for online in order to target advertising at you, in order that you part with a little bit more of your money. And so this vision of personalised health, mining all this data to do things that might actually improve my health is nothing more than what the search engines and the Amazons of the world are doing routinely to all of us every day, just in the hope that we might spend a little bit more money in the shops. So for that system, uh, that's me here as a system here, the desired output on the behalf of the advertising company or the, or the retailer is that I spend lots and lots of money and it will tweak things um, including targeted advertising to uh, make me desire something that possibly otherwise I didn't desire quite as much and perhaps to make me feel that it actually is a need rather than just a desire in order to optimise my spending output. So uh, we can use this diagram to represent different things, and it seems to me that if we are capable of imagining a world where we can use data about individuals to do this, we ought to be able to imagine a world where we can use data about individuals to do something of perhaps slightly wider benefit. Uh, this was one of the ideas that we had behind the project called Sphere, which I'm here to some extent representing as its director, uh, uh, as has already been said, it's quite a large grant uh, led by universities. A lot of engineering people here. So I'm engineering, Southampton University Engineering, Reading University Cybernetics. Lots of engineering people, uh, but also a lot of uh, medical people here as well in the School of Clinical Sciences at Bristol, um, NIHR Biomedical Research Unit in Nutrition, uh, Cardiology, Experimental Psychology. And over lots of people advising us the sort of things that we should be doing. And I wanted to talk about it not because I'm here particularly to plug the project, but just because it's quite a good exemplar of this data-driven approach to healthcare. And in talking about it, it may make some of these things, some of the issues a little bit more clear. So the sorts of sensors that we're interested in in, in Sphere are home-based sensors. And so we have things like activity sensors, particularly activity sensors powered by harvested energy so that we don't need to change batteries. We have video sensors and at this point, alarm bells should start to ring because now we're talking about putting cameras in people's homes. And to be clear, I don't mean telecare. I don't mean turning on a camera to get a consultation with a doctor. I mean a camera that's on all the time filming you. Um, and we have some sensors for water consumption and electricity consumption. And you think, well, why do we want to do that? Well, it's because obviously kind of using water and using electricity is quite a fundamental part of staying alive and cooking and caring for yourself. And so getting information from the home infrastructure, which we can do so cheaply. In fact, this is basically for free because we all have to have these smart meters now. This is coming anyway. Uh, and then bundling all this data up together, mining it, and 
doing some machine learning on it, doing some prediction on it to deliver this personalized healthcare vision, maybe displaying the data to a clinician, maybe displaying the data to me, to some sort of behavior change. And, but the reason I put the word, sel- word seldom over here is that really, in most cases, we don't really want a clinician in the loop because if we have to tie up clinicians with wading through all this data all the time, then we haven't really improved the situation at all. So as far as possible, these should be autonomous systems that help me optimize my healthcare outcome rather than requiring me to ask a doctor to make choices for me in order to get the best outcome. So in some sense, we think of this as an autonomous system rather than one that has to have a clinician in the loop. Clearly, there has to be a clinician somewhere, um, but we wouldn't want every single piece of data to have to go to a clinician for interpretation. This is the size of the project, or it's some of it anyway. So this doesn't include, our, this doesn't include clinical collaborators. So we have about 30 full-time people on the project and about another 30 part-time. So by university standards, it's a big thing. Uh, these are technology things, and really the only thing I really wanted to point out on this slide was uh, the work package six that we'll be doing uh, in a couple of years' of years time. We'll be taking the technologies that I've shown on the previous slide and actually deploying them, so putting them into homes, probably in Bristol, probably about 100 homes uh, will have these sensors put into them. And again, alarm bells should be starting to ring at this point. Uh, have a look at some of the technology. Um, some, I've mentioned, mentioned wearables, wearables like this, sorts of things we're interested in is really low-power wireless devices uh, for monitoring levels of activity and pairing them with what's called energy harvesting. So one of the problems with wearables uh, is that batteries need to be charged regularly and data needs to be downloaded, so we don't really want to have to do that. So as well as doing the research on the wearables, we're also doing research on the systems that will power them such that you have a wearable on your wrist and it just stays there forever and the data just comes off it and you never have to worry about recharging it or downloading it. So that's, as an engineer, that's kind of interesting to me. I mentioned the video sensor. So this is an example of a video camera. It's quite an old one, actually. There are, there are more recent ones around. And this is the sort of stuff that it's able to capture. So uh, we don't want to capture video of people because what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with you know, three hours video of me watching television? It's not really of any interest to any, anyone. I don't, I don't think so. Um, but what the video uh, system can be used as a sensor in its own right. So these video systems are capable of extracting skeleton. Now, actually, this is somebody walking up the stairs uh, in the university. And you think about it, this is something that you do day in, day out. You probably start on the same foot every time. It probably takes you to within a half a second exactly the same length of time to, um, to go up and down every single time you go up and down stairs. And if you go upstairs, down, upstairs radically slower or leading with a different leg or maybe just going like one step and closing and one step and closing. This is probably because something bad is happening. And so there's diagnostic information uh, in these video streams. And, the, and the, the system can extract this automatically. It doesn't need a human being to do this. And it doesn't need to store the video. So all it's doing, it's just going to be analysing the trajectories of these points and saying something like good and bad. So our first reaction is putting cameras in people's homes is, is bad. That seems like an invasion of privacy. But if it's only just recording a number out of 10 as to how well you walked up the stairs, I don't really feel very threatened by that piece of information. That doesn't seem any different to what a wearable device would gather from me. So we are doing video sensors, and it's, but it does raise some privacy issues. But then you have to have a slightly uh, perhaps more informed debate about this because it's not like the video is going anywhere. In fact, it's impossible to save the video because there'd be far too much of it. So all it has to record is a number for how well I went upstairs that day. 
Uh, you might be interested to know that um, although we have a long-term plan to deploy these things in Bristol in a few years' time, uh, we've started deploying them already. We have a house near the university, um, and uh, the system uh, has been installed. The sensors are now in the house, at least the first generation of them, of them are, and we'll be using the house to debug technology, but also to give people the experience of living in these environments, because it actually there's research to be done there about the attitude of people to technology. Often technology is developed, someone just develops the technology, and then afterwards someone asks the question, well, was that a good idea after all? So what we want to do with part of our research is to do it uh, with end users, with real people, citizens, um, from day one to see what the issues are. Because maybe, maybe there isn't an issue. Maybe, in the, you know, I've heard it said so often that if somebody proposed Google now, nobody would let it happen. You know, this seems quite a threatening, very large organization that gathers a lot of data. If you wrote, wrote a funding proposal to say you wanted to do this, it probably wouldn't be funded. But we, it, it's kind of grown with us, and we, and we all have somehow uh, made a sort of a decision that actually we quite like to be able to find stuff on the Internet. Okay? And, and slowly society has, has, has accepted this. And this may happen with autonomous cars as well, and that's this sort of thing. So we, we, technology evolves and people evolve with it. But it's kind of important to do research with people, especially in healthcare technology, I think, not just develop technology and then throw it at them. Um, so I mentioned the video sensors. This is a floor plan of the house. And some of the stars here mark the position of, of uh, video cameras. And you can see the sorts of things that we're talking about. Um, so there's a camera up here and the camera on the television. Uh, there's a camera able to observe some steps. It's got kind of like a kitchen extension. So it's got a few little steps down into the, into the kitchen. Uh, that's me there. I was there last night. Um, I wanted to check the kitchen was working, so I decided to make a cake because we want people to come and live in this house and we want it to actually be a home for people rather than uh, just, just a lab. So that was actually me making a cake, which turned out, as you can see, reasonably splendidly um, after that. Although I did discover we, did, we didn't have a sieve, but apparently that doesn't matter. All that stuff about sieving flour makes no difference. Um, so we're quite high-profile project, uh, projects. There's Greg Clark, the um, uh, Science and University and Cities Minister, at one of our events a few weeks ago. And I think I'm going to skip over this. But we have some really nice stuff going on in epidemiology, looking at um, uh, issues to do with weight gain in pregnancy, with neuroscience, looking at brain function, experimental psychology, looking at how clinicians can use the data, University of the West of England, biosensors, uh, and lots of other people as well, including the faculties of social science and arts at, at Bristol, because these are not purely technology or even purely clinical issues. There's a lot of stuff here about law, ethics, um, and as well as psychology and even philosophy. So, challenges. Uh, so, uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the challenges I've already mentioned is, is to do with the, the video system. This is, these are very invasive uh, technologies. This is not like your mobile phone or your car. This isn't really something you can just like to, you know, put down or walk away from if you don't like it anymore. These are systems that would be uh, actually in, in, in your home. And uh, you don't need me to tell you that there are significant issues to do with uh, data ownership and that sort of thing. Um, the business model is very unclear here as well because uh, although we can gather all this data, this wasn't how the NHS or any other healthcare system was, was set up. Okay, so who's going to pay for this? Do I pay for this personally? But then again, but 
you know, that's not how I pay for, for my health treatment in the, in the NHS. So why would I save money? Why would I spend my money to save the NHS money in the future? So, so all this technology will somehow have to be incorporated into the business model for delivering health care. And it's not the business model we currently have. And it's actually very hard for companies and organizations to invest in this space at the moment because it's very hard to work out what would be the return on the investment because it's not the way the healthcare system currently works. And so there's, no, uh, there's not really an obvious mechanism um, for uh, recovering uh, those costs. There's also some really big uh, issues around um, what's the role of the healthcare professional in this. Now, I know for sure, in some senses, doctors probably want to reduce their workload. They probably would prefer to spend more time with the patients that they need to see rather than having, in general practice, having to spend 15 minutes with every patient who comes to the door when some of those are unnecessary uh, appointments. But still, the doctor somehow needs to keep control over this. And it's um, clearly going to be a challenge for that to happen. And we must be very, very careful about this. And some people say some very controversial things about this. So there's a quote from... um, guy here who said, with easy input of real medical results, so the sort of data that I'm talking about into a computer, and long-standing historical data per patient and per population, again, exactly the sort of thing that I've been talking about, um, uh, which a human cannot possibly handle. So if you, you, know, if you gave it, said to a you know, GP, the person you've got your 15-minute appointment with, here's their genetic data, here's their lifestyle data, here's their date, here's their... Um, whatever else data, some blood samples, some medical, medical images. Um, how, can a, how could a clinician possibly hope to take that on board? And the solution that was proposed by this, just the, this gentleman was, was that um, a computer diagnosis should certainly be better than a middling physician's. And in some senses, you can't really argue with that because the physician wouldn't be able to cope with that volume of data. So if there's, if there's value in it, probably a computer is a better place to... to, to uh, analyze that data than a human being could possibly be. Computers are quite good, after all, at analyzing, analyzing data. So what is the role for the clinician? I mean, maybe the role is the clinician then spends their time where they can really add value on the, on the patients where the, which would benefit from their time. But anyway, it's still a controversial point of view and very well, uh, and I think quite bravely, expressed in the final paragraph here. It said, eventually, we won't need the average doctor and we'll have much better and cheaper care for 90 to 99% of our medical needs. And uh, what amuses me about this quote is that, A, it was given by a very eminent uh, businessman and engineer, co-founder of Sun Microsystems, an enormous company, and he was speaking to an audience of doctors at this point. So, um, so full marks at any rate for, for, for bravery. It's not recorded what happened and how much medical care he needed afterwards. But um, uh, uh, people are expressing these points of view, and at some, le- at some level you have to look at this and say, well, actually, it's kind of understandable that people would say this. I mean, no doctor... If there's value in that data, um, it's going to be very, very hard for a doctor um, to find it. Some other, other stuff is, is interesting is around what are the interventions? So it's all very well. Now I showed you my system model of uh, monitoring things about me and then optimizing things about me. But what, how actually would I do that? How, for example, could, how can you persuade me to, to eat less? Okay, I mentioned a little bit about social media, but what would the interventions uh, look like? Um, so... Uh, so there are some kind of like useful, useful bits of work largely sort of around the sort of field of behavioural economics and psychiatry really so this is a nice experiment that always makes people laugh so I thought I'd share it with you so uh, this is a professor from uh, the States the Executive Director of the US Department of Agriculture Centre for Nutrition Policy and Promotion which is clearly a very prom- important thing and so um, he did a nice experiment so uh, he was interested 
in, um, he set up some bowls and tables, as you can see, and there was soup in there. And uh, they poured in soup from the bottom. The participant was unaware of this. And so the soup bowl was kind of, was kind of there. And they were eating, eating soup. And unbeknownst to the participants, uh, the soup was being re- refilled from, uh, from, from the bottom. And you think, well, that's very obvious. Obviously, the participants, they just stopped eating when they were full, right? You, you, you're eating and you're full and, and you stop. Actually, no. So about 30% of the experiments actually had to be stopped um, <laughs> because of danger to the participant. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in, in this, and none of the participants realised that the bowl of soup was refilling itself. And so, first of all, okay, yes, it's, it is a, it is a funny thing, and I suppose some of us might be thinking, well, that's, you know, typical Americans, ha ha, that would never happen in the in, in the UK. But how many of us have ha- have had the experience, for example, of opening a packet of biscuits in the evening, watching television, and then after an hour later, there's no biscuits. Who had, who had the biscuits? Okay, and it's because. Um, of, we're not wired up very well to, regu- to regulate our dietary intake. We tend basically to stop eating when there's no food left on the plate. And obviously many of the issues around uh, obesity are to do with the very uh, ready availability of very high calorific foods in very large quantities. Because if you buy someone you know, a 12-inch pizza rather than a 9-inch pizza, they'll probably still eat the whole pizza, whether it's 12 inches or 9 inches. And so, um, so the, the, issue, the issue here... Uh, is that uh, I think, as was said in the paper that he wrote, that people use their eyes to count to count uh, calories, and so um, calorie counting itself has not been at all successful in reducing obesity. Obesity has only risen over the last twenty years, despite the the, uh, um, the kind of the policy directives to reduce cal- calorie intake. It's done nothing at all. So the likely interventions are probably around more around behaviour and making people aware of where they're eating. What time are they eating? What are they doing while, while they're eating? So things like not watching television or encouraging people to um, sit down and eat, and eat a meal at, at a table with other people rather than snacking on the sofa. So there are some interventions that, uh, that we can imagine. OK, so uh, my vision of 22nd or maybe sort of like 21st and a half century healthcare kind of can be summarised as uh, cheap pervasive sensing of behaviour combines all this personal information, genetic, epigenetic, metabolomic data, and everything embedded in our electronic health records, because that's all quite easily accessible nowadays. So this huge data set, too vast to be analysed by any human clinician, is mined by immensely powerful machine learning algorithms, and our long-term health conditions are avoided or managed on a continuous basis via subtle automated behavioural nudges derived from new understandings of human psychology. And can anybody see any problems with that? Does that seem okay? That we're all drift through the world, receiving alerts from our smartphones and little flashing messages on the television and vibrations on our wristbands to stop us from doing the things that are bad for us. Because that, that would be fine. That would be okay? Okay, so, so uh, there are obviously some obvious problems and other better qualified people than me have, have, have spoken about them. So what are the grounds for the behavioral, behavioral deport, um, defaults? So who, who can, what, you know... On what, what right has anyone got to say to me? How much I should drink, or what exercise I should uh, um, should I have, or how much can I eat? Um, what are the democratic credentials? I and mean, who actually is setting these behavioural defaults? Who is deciding on behalf of the population of the UK what is the optimum amount of exercise to have, and who voted for them? Um, and a, a slightly more subtle point, which actually comes from, from I think this was a book um, that I got, I got this from. So. Uh, 
in a slightly academic way, they've written replaces the ideal neoliberal liberal with a citizen fool unable to develop social con- competences. In other words, we would re- be removing, in some sense, the responsibility that we all have individually to look after ourselves because the system is doing it for us. And if you do that, that may not actually be the best outcome because maybe it's quite important that people take responsibility for their own health and their own exercise. And we shouldn't be trying to remove that and uh, take it into uh, the world of computer science. And again, kind of similar to the point about democracy, is this actually the the role of government to to set in place these systems? Um, But this is quite interesting because you can put some other points of view as well. Is is that so? It's not like our behaviour is not already influenced. So this isn't this isn't a new thing. And so we receive all these sorts of influences all the time. We are continually bombarded by advertising to make us buy more, eat more, watch, watch more television. So you can't really say that we live in a world without behavioural in- influences. So maybe to have a few good behavioural in- influences isn't an unreasonable thing uh, to suppose. It's kind of redressing the balance in some sense. And I think actually very helpfully in the, from the famous book called Nudge, um, which some of you will, will have read, I'm, I'm sure, is that actually in terms of who sets these behavioural norms... This could be ourselves individually. It doesn't have to be the government or the NHS who sets these, these things. And so think about setting targets. This could be a target that I set for myself, not eating biscuits in front of the television. And so if the system tells me that you're eating biscuits in front of the television again, that's something that I've decided is something that I don't want to do rather than something that's decided for me. So these points are somewhat subtle. They're not really perhaps black and white. Um, we should also be optimistic about um, public engagement and accountability and transparency. So it's one thing to do research to people, but it's another thing to do research, as we're doing in Sphere, with people and explaining it uh, to them. And so, for example, um, we can also imagine some quite playful things. This is a cheery little video that I shall share with you. So, like I said, you can, I mean, these people have obviously have been um, some victims of some nasty experiment in behavioural psychology, um, but actually they kind of look like they're having, having fun. So when we talk about behaviour change, it doesn't need to be something terribly threatening and uh, undone by the state uh, to us. So um, uh, some of the things we should be optimistic about is is there's huge potential for engineers and computer scientists to work together with clinicians, and, and um, obviously uh, designability you know, exemplifies, uh, exemplifies what can be done uh, by uh, these different disciplines uh, working together, but I think it's very much uh, a somewhat untapped uh, resource. Um, and in fact, we can expect those distinctions to blur. So although we can't perhaps imagine very many uh, clinicians uh, becoming these sort of data scientists who will analyze data to find, work out what the best thing is uh, for their patient, obviously that's going to change over time. Uh, young people are always more and more familiar with, with new, te- new technologies. And so whereas at the moment a clinician may be a little bit disconcerted if you come in with your smartwatch and say, there's something bad in my data, doctor, what should I do? That's probably not going to be the case in, in 10 years, 20, 20 years time these things will be will be taken for granted and so in some senses the distinction between the clinician and the data scientist will actually start to blur it's, that's an inevitably going, going, going to be going to be the case um so uh so we can think about um uh, you know technologies that are person-centric supportive preventative and these are uh, these are good things they sound like good things that we should aspire to or on the other hand we may think of these technologies being threatening uh uh, or invasive. And 
So really, one of the basic issue is, are these absolute things? Is the invasion of technology into our lives, can we just say it's either a good thing or it's a bad thing? But actually, that's not, that doesn't tend to be what we do. It's generally, a, it's not an absolute thing. It's not that I don't think I should share my data with, with anyone else. I share my data with people all the time. Every time I do a web search, I decide that it's, I don't mind giving out that piece of information about what I'm interested in because I want to get something back from the internet that I need or I don't mind searching for something that I want to buy online because I want to find that thing more than I care about somebody else knowing that I want to find that thing to buy. So it's probably more of a question of risk-benefit. So in terms of there's some risk in these technologies entering our lives, but the question is really is what is the benefit? And uh, projects like Sphere, I think its role is very much to try and quantify some of these things. So how much benefit is there? Because if the benefit's not very big, then it's probably not worth having the risk of all of us walking around with wearables and all the data being sucked up into, a, into the cloud. Um, but if there is some benefit there, as many people think it, 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 it will be, and it will save the NHS billions and billions of pounds and it will lead to better healthcare and we're able to care for people longer and better, then uh, that's a different matter altogether. And so uh, Sphere as a project is trying to bring all these things together, engineering, computer science, clinical science, clinical practice, social science, the arts, and uh, consider all these questions uh, together and be well informed about the risks and the capability. Um, so I occasionally, uh, when, I, when I do talks like this, get slightly hostile reactions, so I'm going to kind of preempt it. So I'm going to kind of push that out here to see what, just to, so you can't say it to me in a minute. Um, so people say to me, so you want to surround us with sensors and invade our privacy? And um, actually, not really. I'm kind of agnostic about it. I, I would like to know whether it's a good thing and whether it will give some ben- sort of benefit to, um, or whether it, whether it uh, won't. And to, to some extent... Uh, my opinion about this is, is that, no, I don't particularly want to do this, I don't particularly want to do this, and I'm agnostic about, about the outcome. But what I'm motivated by is the fact that this is coming. It is happening. It's, it's absolutely... I can't, I can't imagine a way in which this is not going to happen. I mean, people are now driving around with black boxes in their car reporting their speed and driving style and position in order to cut a bit of money off their motor insurance. So people have made that trade-off in terms of privacy, sharing their data with a corporation because it gives them cheaper car insurance. And so if people are going to do this for car insurance, and it's already happening, people are already doing this, it's advertised quite, quite routinely, then I can't imagine that this is not going to come. And what I think is the responsibility of, of universities and large projects is to, is to do it first and to do it with the public and to prepare people for it and to have a dialogue with people and to do it in the, in the right way. So rather than having developing technology and then the world trying to catch up, we try and have a, a, you know, do things in partnership with uh, not only clinicians but also citizens as well. So returning now to the beginning and, and what I was thinking of when I gave the talk its title, a, a few sort of concluding th- thoughts, which is partly to do, so partly the reason I, I wrote the title as it is, Data Scientist, Heal, Heal thy, Thyself, is that actually this is because the physician, in the quote, will increasingly become a data scientist. Physicians already work with data. They work with blood test results and they work with medical Im- images. And increasingly they will have more and more data to work with and we will have to train doctors to be a, a, a lot better at analysing statistical information and epidemiological information and, and clinical information from a wide range of, range of, of tests. And that will undoubtedly end, enter more and more into the, tra- into the training of doctors. So that distinction will, I think, kind of vanish a little bit. 
Um, and similarly, engineers and computer scientists will, uh, will have to understand new things too. Um, these uh, healthcare sensors, cameras in the home, things measuring what we're eating, things that we're, that we're wearing, um, the sorts of things that engineers and computer scientists like to do, we really like to have controlled experiments. We like to have a big white room with gadgets in it that we can test and draw graphs and write papers on. That's what engineers and computer scientists really, really like. Uh, and actually, that, that's not an option because you can't do, you can't put people with, you know, I can't ask someone, a member of the public, to come and be in our laboratory for two years and wear a wearable. Okay, I'll, it's more like uh, giving a thousand people a wearable device, as some projects projects do, and then seeing the way that affects people over a very long term. And so this is the world of the engineering and the computer scientists that we used to be so much lab-based is... is um, is kind of vanishing. If we want to do these things, then we, have, we need engineers and computer scientists who don't mind doing things in uncontrolled environments. And that might sound like a small thing, but actually that's a really big cultural change for the engineers and computer scientists that, that I uh, work with on a daily basis. Um, all sorts of, uh, sort of related things to that. So we need engineers and computer scientists who understand about medical ethics uh, with our uh, young researchers in the Sphere project, we've had to, had to do research ethics training with them. In computer science, for example, it's routine just to film people in labs and then you put the footage online and share it with people around, around the world. They don't do ethics for that. Okay? It's just not, it's not something that is even in their in the vocabulary. But it, 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 needs to, it needs to happen. So we've had to do ethics training about how to, how to write ethics applications and how, how to consider all the issues to do with the ethical conduct of, of research. This is, again, this new territory as we come out of the, out of the lab Obviously, understanding of physiology, of social science, um, the way that communities and individuals interact with technology and psychology. And that's especially important if we actually want the right people and doing it well and doing it respectfully. Because um, in some sense, I guess we have, we have a feeling that clinicians are people who are motivated to help other people and we trust them to help other people. We don't necessarily think of engineers and computer scientists in, in the same way. We, they probably didn't enter that uh, career path, perhaps with the idea of caring for people as being foremost in their mind. It probably wasn't what drove them in that, in that direction to start with. And so if we want this sort of research to be done uh, well and respectfully and the right sort of products developed for the right sort of reasons, respecting people's privacy, uh, for example, and then, then we need really good training for engineers and computer scientists, which is not the same as what they would normally do during a, a degree courses. I'm speaking in general terms, but basically that's, that's the case. And um, we could go back a little bit further than, than that. Actually, is actually as a, as a parent my, uh, myself, it, the um, I think this actually goes back right back to, to school edu- education, and it's quite important to address this at an even earlier stage. And so, uh, children at school often choose these kind of career paths: are they going to do like hard sciences and maths and coding, or are they going to do biology and anatomy? For, you know, heading towards a career in the in the caring professions. And children are often kind of sort of either forked off one way or the other. In fact, invariably, at some point in their education, they are they go either one way uh, or the um, or the other. And so we really need to be able to talk to people, you know, you know young, young people at the age of 12 or 13 or 14 as they choose the subjects that they, that they study to say, hey, if you're really interested in making a difference in caring for elderly people or caring for people with depression or, or diabetes, you should be doing coding at school. Okay? That, that wouldn't be a logical thing to, conversation to have at the moment. I don't, I don't think there's 
There are many careers, teachers in, in, in the UK, who would say that to, let's say, a young girl uh, with, with those, those interests. And that's kind of really a problem because, A, we'll miss that potential, but also the, the people who would be motivated to do those things are probably getting the wrong sort of training, or at least we're not training enough of the people that we will need to do this. And we might end up with people who are um, not the right people to be doing medical technology research. Okay, so we need to um, even go reach back into, into, into schools and uh, try and inform some of the career choices for people who would have, otherwise would have considered um, careers in medicine or careers in uh, social services um, to, uh, or nursing uh, to consider careers in technology because technology itself will have a pretty important role uh, in the future. And, and I, I, really, I really hope so because we really need the right sort of people to be doing, the people who are motivated by the right things to develop the right hardware and, and software. And actually, my final slide is, is actually a very good example, example of this uh, in sphere of running a wearable electronics uh, competition. They're competing for a prize of about £5,000 that the Mayor of Bristol is awarding in December. We had about 60 people joining in. And this actually is one of the groups from two weeks ago. We were running this, running this at weekends. Uh, these three young ladies are from a school in Bristol. We've got a couple of PhD students. This lady, I think, may work for the NHS. So they're all in, in mixed teams. Uh, and uh, these young girls are about 14, I think. Uh, and they've been doing coding at school. And I think their appreciation of of computer coding has been transformed by the sudden realisation that they can do this really neat stuff to do with healthcare um, by studying uh, coding. And I've actually worked with them in, the, in, the, in their schools and they're doing a fantastic job and I'm very optimistic um, for what they'll be able to accomplish. And I've got absolutely no doubt that uh, young people such as, such as this uh, will have a significant role to play in the way that our healthcare systems evolve in the future. So... That concludes my talk. Um, Thank you very much to uh, Designability uh, for inviting me this evening. Thank you.